um, people in the audience. One was in the audience at the rep and the other one was in the audience at the detention facility. He was one of the kids in the detention. So here's one of the audience members. At the end of the play, we passed out feedback forms and this was on one of the feedback forms. I think a lot about my brother who has been in prison for eight years for murder. He is really angry and violent. He is in much pain. He was never heard. He just needs to be heard. He saw and heard, I saw and heard my brother and myself in these kids. I heard my mother in the adult characters. We all need help. I am happy to have had this experience. I cried. I feel my love for myself. I feel my pain. Thank you. Wow. And then this, the boy in hall number nine, one of the boys in the detention facility, because we took the play back into the detention facility. And he said, I found your art to be very understanding. I too wish to be able to come forth and speak of my angers. My family is in close, not sure what he meant by that, but we just put it just the way he said it, in close with our inner feelings. He must have meant enclosed with our inner feelings. Seems to come out only when something dramatic appears. I wish to speak freely about my feelings towards my family. As you know, it's hardest to speak to people you love the most. Sorry, time to go. I wish you the best of luck on your program and please continue. We need people who want to understand us. Letters from within. Amazing. Pamela, we got to get going. We got to get this. <laughs> this is going to be a great, great, great conversation. I am going to put you on hold for a few minutes. We're going to get okay. this introduction and we're going to get it going. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. Welcome to another, another, another episode of The Den. This is your host, Isaac, a.k.a. The Finisher. Thank you once again for allowing me the opportunity to walk into you in your life as well as you walking into mine. We have a very special guest this evening. I'm not going to get into any of the particulars we're just going to get right into the conversation. So, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you Miss Pamela Sackett. How you doing, Pamela? Hi. Hi, Isaac. How are you? How's your week been so far? It's been challenging. <laughs> I can relate. I can relate. It's only, what, Tuesday? And it feels like a Thursday already. Yeah, yeah. It I does. most definitely can relate. So, won't you tell our audience who you are and what you do? Wow. That's 
that's a lot to ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I don't know. Let's see. Um, well, I am a person who is very much uh, in love with communication. It's hugely important to me. I was just talking to an introvert last night, and he doesn't have a lot of conversations, uh, he told me, actually. And I asked him if he was an introvert. He said, yeah, you know, introverts can be exhausted by conversations with people or having any social yes. interaction at all. However, I learn what I'm thinking or what I I'm, could think when I have a conversation. It's always a discovery, you know, because everything's so spontaneous. Um, I have been a person very involved with the arts since I was five. So I did theater as a child. Um, I had a lot of dance training, music. I performed as a child in different venues. Um, and then I had some trauma as a teenager and began to write. And I really, I can't say I totally withdrew in that process, but there was a part of me that, that I think did. Um, and I started to, through writing, create a world that was accepting of me um, because part of the trauma had to do with that. It's a, that's a, another very long story. Um, but what I developed over many years was a facility to reflect and to trust my critical, creative thinking part of my brain, even though there was a lot of, there were many, um, many in uncertainties, many insecurities, because I basically went on the road at a certain point. I didn't finish college then, I did later, but I went on the road and had quite a few adventures and um, all kinds of things. But I took my guitar with me everywhere I went. For those first several years of my writing life, they were all about songs and writing songs and basically documenting my experience and, and giving myself a way to witness my experience and understand my experience through writing. And that continued and continued and grew into a lot of other types of writing. Uh, I was a, had a comedy act with a guy for a while and um, I was commissioned to write a play or a number of plays, and I wrote several plays. I went, you know, I'm kind of fickle in terms of form, art form. You know, it's more about um, really finding the best conduit for the essence of things that gives experience the most meaning and understanding. And um, I was always about what's between the lines, you know. And so I'm very kind of married to nuance. Okay. Um, yeah. And um, I think that's a lot of what I learned how to tap into through all the writing that I did. And um, eventually um, I started writing a very disclosing piece of work about my, not just my teen life, but that was kind of at the core of that whole phenomenon of witnessing and learning that the story I was handed as a kid or as a teenager, the story I was given was not reflective of what my experience was. Exactly. In other words, 
I had trauma, but nobody reflected that back to me. And therefore I didn't know. It was such it wasn't it wasn't a totally nuanced trauma by any means. It was right. a very strong physical component. But um I learned gradually that I needed to really unearth what was true for me in terms of my feelings, my needs, my vulnerabilities, you know, my human condition, what, what was really going on? Because until I discovered that, um, I was bouncing off of the walls of those barriers to that knowledge about myself. And so once I started to unfold that and peel peel all the layers away and see what was really there and have a lot of feelings around it and and exactly a lot of grief a lot of crying i understood too that what i was developing in my sort of through my intellectual capacity and my mental framework um wasn't telling me all of the story some of the story that that couldn't tell was the nonverbal story in my body, all the feelings which are nonverbal. So once I let myself open into those feelings that were tucked away because I didn't have the reflection back of what was really going on for me, once I opened that up, when I cried, I got so much more of the story but it really wasn't a conceptual story. It was, I mean, it was important that I had that conceptual story, you know, ironed out, but the feelings that I had told me so much about myself. And I think there's there's a lot of resistance to vulnerability. Um, and that's a very true part of our human condition that's never gonna go away because the physical world is, has a fragility to it. And these are the kinds of things I, I came to understand over time. I, um, after working at Seattle Rep and doing a lot of teaching artist residencies, because that's what a lot of the writing kind of turned into, um, I was urged to start my own nonprofit to house and support this mission that had grown out of all this personal work that I had done and written about and delivered to a lot of people. That was a big part of it was I delivered a lot of the writing in different settings, different performance venues, and very organically. (laughs) It wasn't like a plan, but one thing led to another. And the feedback I got telling my own story, but people feeling a lot of permit or sensing a lot of permission to, t- to tap into their own. So, so I'm telling my particular story and there's all these universal threads in it that people would, would pick up on and sort of wrap around themselves so that they can have that kind of discovery as well. And those kinds of transitions of, you know, who they think they are and who they discovered they are even more so than what they had thought yes, initially. Yes, you know? yes. And I just think the baseline of it is is a certain type of experience that the fight, flight, fast brain isn't going to grasp. And this is sort of my the, the main thesis of, of my work. Um, I do. I, so I have the nonprofit and we're developing learning tools and using these different art forms that I had been using, but focusing them more on language 
because emotional literacy advocacy is really about paying attention to language. And you can tell what part of your brain, if you have the, if you have, you know, some influence of, you know, um, some uh, guidance around it, you can tell what part of the brain is generating the certain different types of narrative. If it's a black and white narrative, it's a fight flight narrative based on the imperative of the fight flight brain. The fight flight brain's decisive, black and white, immediate, fast brain. It's not nuanced, it's not reflective. <laughs> I'm laughing because so, I most definitely can relate to the fight or flight, man. That's a comfortability. For oh. many, many Americans, that's a comfortability as soon as things get become difficult. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting. That's where people sit. Security is the top priority because it's an instinct to keep ourselves physically alive. Exactly. However, when we're threatened, it's not always, a, you know, a, a cut and dried threat. It could be a projection. It could be a memory that you haven't processed, a trauma you haven't processed. I mean, this is a basic skill that everybody should have. Everybody should be able to recognize what's generating their way of thinking. And so with I think the difference for me is that and for a number of people that I know is that I developed I had a need to understand even in my traumatic, maybe especially in my traumatic state, I had a need to understand. So I relied upon my critical creative thinking brain. And because of the kinds of people my my parents were in, the kind of artists my parents exposed me to as a child, like Lenny Bruce, for one, when I was in elementary school, I was exposed to him. Um, and just a number of really interesting, nuanced, you know, kind of edgy people. I think I had some indoctrination there enough so that I could tap into my own facility and develop it and expand on it. But, but I think the key thing is that I developed a trust for my critical, creative thinking part of my brain. I developed a trust. So even when I'm afraid, I'm still going to look to that thinking process for guidance. I'm not going to just take it as it's handed. Exactly. I'm going to... Yeah, I'm going to spend some time. I'm going to reflect, even if I'm scared. And I think that that's the difference. It's it's not that I have less trauma. I mean, you know, trauma, it's very much by degrees. I mean, you know, there are really extreme ones, and then there are other ones that aren't, but it's all relative. You know, the people that don't have as extreme, that's big to them, you know. Um, but, you know, if you're looking at it globally, oh, my God, you know, there's huge differences. Um, but in any event, that's... That's kind of my my main focus is always distinguishing, you know, is this going to get us somewhere? Is this going to change our human story? Because I think that the more, the, in, until we start trusting the critical creative thinking part of our brain and start imagining, envisioning, creating a different story, making ourselves available to a different story, being more open to uncertainty, we will be less at the mercy of the habituated ways of thinking that are always just tied. You know, I think we get brain drugs when we, I think homophobia, racism, anti-Semitism, mm -hmm. is my, my premise anymore is that I think when you say to the when you respond to that fight fight brain prodding you to be decisive and make a quick decision about somebody based on pretty much nothing, I think you get brain drugs. I think the fight fight brain 
reward you for it. I really do. I think that's why we're so habituated to that because it's obviously so off the track when you make a decision about somebody that you don't know. And so anyway, this is the kind of stuff I get all worked up about. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, the thing about vulnerability, I wanted to mention this to you based on um, some of what we talked about before this started, is that there was there's a group in Canada who, a um, group of men who, start, and I don't even know if they still exist, but this is back in the 90s, they started an organization because of some really violent acts that men did in their town. And they started this, you know, nonprofit to try to prevent and try to heal the town. And somehow they got a hold of a piece of writing that I must have had on our website or something. I don't know how they got it because I had never I never met any of those people. I knew nothing about them. But I got a call from a woman who was doing um, NBC, Nonviolent Communication Marshall Rosenberg's work in a prison program. And adult felons, male sex offenders, I think is who she was working with. She called me up and she said, I learned about this piece of writing. Can I take it into the facility and read it to the men? And I said, absolutely. <laughs> you know, please do. She did. I mean, I can read it to you if you want to hear so, it. You know um, what? That sounds like a great opportunity for not just you, but everybody that's involved because write, writing is is really one of the core methods of you being able to kind of untangle that thought process and put it on paper. And one of the things that I that I, that I um I express to my men that that I work I work with, I tell them on Monday I want you to start writing. I don't care how it comes out or how it looks. However, I don't and I want you to take every day and I want you to write what you're feeling. I write I want you to write what you're experiencing. And I want I want I want happy dopamine and sad dopamine in that process. Yeah. And then when I yeah. leave with you on Friday, we're gonna I want you to read it to me. And then I and then I want you to reflect on your own, you know, personal thoughts and ideas. And everything that you're talking about, you know, when we're talking about that creative process, um from my experience and what I've experienced is that in order to tap into that creative process, we have to change some of the things that we believe. You have to know what they are first, right? You have to know what they are first. So you have to just look and see what's there. But you know what? They're right there. And many times we know. We know who we are. And we know how we think, whether it's right, wrong, or indifferent. Unfortunately, there's a comfortability that comes with that. And when we become comfortable in that in that that trauma, that unhealthy thinking, then we start to believe that, you know what, how I think and what I believe is right. Mm -hmm. So when we have situations that's counterproductive to that and consequences that are negative to that, right, it gives us an opportunity to sit back. We're going to do one or two things. We're going to try to figure out another way to do it the best. We're gonna figure out another way to do it, and not get caught, or we're gonna we're gonna figure out a way to not to do it anymore, so we can get better. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. It's really, you know, engaging. You have to engage. Exactly. You you have to think. You have to use, you know, the part of your brain that's capable of, of, you know, navigating those layers. And it takes some work. And, and many, many of us, that's what we fear because the work is unknown. We don't know where the work is going to take us yeah. and yeah. where the work is going to send us. So that comfortability is real. And, and one thing I express a lot of times, I'll be like, you know, you have to learn how to be uncomfortable when you're comfortable. I love that. I, 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 I have a lyric that's, that's like that. That's about that. Um, yeah. And um, when, yeah. You, when you begin to learn how to be that's uncomfortable, key. when you're comfortable, you give yourself an opportunity to continue to grow, to yeah. learn, and to teach. Because when mm-hmm. you're in that state, you find out, man, you know what? My thinking might not be always cool. Maybe I'll give myself another opportunity to to have somebody enter into my space that can teach me something that I may need to know. Um, Maybe I need to give myself an opportunity to be better, surround myself around people that don't know as much as I know, but has been through as much as I've been and be able to and have been able to plant their feet and keep their hair high. That's a lot of work. Oh, it's a lot of work. It's a and lot of work. you have to be able to say yes to your needs. You have to exactly. be able to be vulnerable in a way. That's part of your vulnerability. Vulnerability is, is something. Because because when you're vulnerable, Pamela, you're also woundable. Say that again. You're also when you're woundable. You're woundable. Woundable. Yes. yes. Woundable. And may, I want to read this piece. May I read this? Yes, you may. My pleasure. Uh, so, oh, thank you. Well, what the woman said who did this, was doing this program in the prison, said that you could hear a pin drop. These men, she read it to them, and you could hear a pin drop. So I thought that was really interesting. So, Emotion Literate's proclamation, I am vulnerable living in the unknown. Let's talk about it. Oh, Let's yes. read it. Oh, yes, I have my patterns, my familiars, my adaptive powers, and I'm vulnerable living in the unknown. To hide, minimize, pretend that I'm not vulnerable is to lie to myself. To lie, I must feed my fear and numb my sensibilities, my ability to sense that I'm vulnerable living in the unknown. To not sense myself is to not be myself. To not be myself is to ignore myself, forget myself, lose myself. To lose myself is to lose my protection, my being, and wear a mask. To lose my protection, my being, and wear a mask, I'm not talking about the pandemic now, I must be somebody else, somebody who is not vulnerable, not living in the unknown. To be somebody who is not vulnerable, not living in the unknown, I must act tougher, smarter, more something or other. To act tougher or smarter, I must believe that it is necessary to hurt or defeat another in order to not be hurt or defeated myself. 
to let myself feel my vulnerability is to remember my vulnerability from long ago and how it was exploited, bulldozed over, not noticed. I must remember or I will forget that I'm vulnerable living in the unknown still. I must remember so that I can recognize myself. To recognize myself is to pay attention to myself. To pay attention to myself is to protect myself, to be with myself. To protect myself, to be with myself, I must know myself and what I need. To know myself and what I need, I must learn about myself. To learn about myself, I must be open. To be open, I must be vulnerable, living in the unknown. Yeah. <laughs> Let's sit on that for a minute. Vulnerability. As much as we dislike being vulnerable, it is something that's essential. It's a yeah. must. We have to in order to change. Vulnerability brings some pain, some heartache, yeah, some laughter, and some joy. Yes. At the end of the day, it's up to us as individuals on what we do with it. I tell people all the time when I talk to them, you know, pain sometimes is necessary in order for yeah. us to get to a place of growth. Mm -hmm. If you don't go through anything and everything is always given to you, when it's time for you to go through that season that it seems like everything is not going well, you'll never learn how to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's important, you know, for individuals to understand the power of communication and not and not be and not communicate from a place of 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 anger learn how to communicate from a place of solace and that takes work yeah because you know we live in a world that people feel like you know they can express themselves to you how they want to express themselves to you and you supposed to accept their behavior and when you don't accept people's behavior, the belief, the belief is that he or she, oh, he can't handle me, she can't handle me. And sometimes it really comes down to individuals making the decision not to accept that type of behavior in their life. Because that's a powerful decision. Because when you when you get through that 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 trauma and you understand the power of being hurt and 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 the solace of having some joy in your life, you begin to make different type of decisions emotionally and mentally. 
Yeah. Emotional well-being is important for everybody, every American. Yeah. However, we feel we live in a world that only, I'm going to say the last 10 years, maybe 15 years, that mental health has been kind of been pushing to the forefront. Yeah. Because individuals are really understanding the importance of people's emotional state. And the work that you are doing with the arts, the playwriting, teaching individuals how to communicate through writing is amazing. Thank you. It is amazing. And that's one of the tools I use. You know, when 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 I meet with my guys and I'm running my group, I always tell them, you know, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, put it on a piece of paper. It comes yeah. out a little differently. Mm. You know, when you when you write, you're more honest. You're open. Mm-hmm. You're vulnerable. It's just you, the paper, and the pen. And you're paying attention. You're paying attention. You are so focused. You're so focused. And that's huge because (laughs) so much happens without that attention. So much just happens, you know, going here, there, you know, all the activities. But you you slow yourself down and you pay attention. Um, I want to say something about anger. You know, anger is an interesting part of the spectrum as a behavior and any kind of behavior, really. Um, it's just, I think what I like to encourage is understanding it. If it drives you to do something that you regret, that's a different story. But if you have it, it's important, I think, to look at what's inside of it. Because a lot of anger, I think, is a cover for grief, is a cover for a sense of no agency. Um, it's a It's a very understandable response when it becomes habitual and when it drives you to do things you regret or things that are destructive, then yeah, then of course you have to, you have to really, I mean, my whole thing is the infrastructure. What's the infrastructure? What's inside of all this stuff? And a lot of people, especially if they're, if they're bracing themselves for something and they're in that fight flight mode and a lot of people are, they, they're not going to really pause and try to understand. They're going to make a quick decision. And that doesn't really lead anywhere um, if, you, if you don't have some way of getting inside of this stuff. You know, just get inside of it. A lot of my playwriting, and I've, I've designed, I designed a play for mentally and emotionally ill people that wanted to tell their story. They told the story and I scripted it for them and they performed it. And that was huge, a huge thing for them to have that experience. And a number of things that I designed for people, because I, I actually designed and have a series of books of theatrical audition pieces for actors. And a lot of them were designed, I designed specifically for an actor. And all of that writing was so much about what was between the lines. I mean, playwriting isn't going to have the depth if there isn't stuff between the lines you know okay Um, and so it 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 really cultivated the interest in the facility 
to think about things in that way. And it doesn't have to be a play. It's like real life has all kinds of things between the lines. People say one thing and there's all this other stuff going on. And um, it's just important to really look at look at all those um, facets, you know, like a jam. I think there's so many, so many things to look at. But like you say, it's work. It's really, it's, 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 I think it's really nourishing food, but, but you have to develop a taste for it, I think, because people are used to being on a quick track and the people you have been talking about that you work with, do they have time to do that when they were running for their life or, you know, facing such horrors in their life? You don't have, you don't have time. You want to you you're not living you're just surviving yeah so you know when when you when you get in survival mode um the process the thought process is is erratic you know you really you think however you react more out of an emotional content out of out of desperation yeah you know when you when you in survival mode you're desperate, and you can have you, you can so have hard. you can have a season of 10, 15, 20 years of living in desperation and don't even know oh. it. Oh, and so, it be- so so yes, and it becomes so comfortable, you know that your that your like your life is so has been turned upside down for so long. You become comfortable with that behavior because it's familiar. It is very, once again, as we talked before the show, it becomes comfortable. Yeah. So once again, I encourage people to learn how to be uncomfortable when you're comfortable. Communication has a power that many people don't understand. And when you learn how to communicate, Mm -hmm. you not only become healthier, Emotionally, emotionally, you become healthier physically. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's huge part of it. Huge, the physical, huge. The physical piece, people don't even. It hasn't even been touched because when we talk about emotional well-being, right? Emotional well-being is just not the mental and the mental, verbal. Mental, emotional, mental, it's, emotional. Right. It's the physical. Oh, it's huge. Because the, huge. the the physical stress that we put on our body when we are unhealthy. See, I, I don't like to use trauma because trauma is so widespread. It's, it, it has become a comfortable word for everybody to use when they choose not to do the work necessary for themselves and continue to put themselves in the position to continue to get what they always got because they're not willing to do the work to change that narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So unhealthy behaviors take work to change. Huge. And you have to make a decision. Yep. And you have to be steadfast and you have to yes. believe. You have to keep redeciding. Steadfast, every, right? Keep every, day. Every, day. every day. Every day. Every day. 
Every day you have to continue. You, look, I got to decide today. I got to decide again in 10 minutes. I got to yeah. re-decide in an hour. I got to re-decide in four hours. It's work. It's all, <laughs> Pamela, it's all day, man. You know. Yeah, I know. You I know. know. I know. It's all day. <laughs> you're driving the car. You're you driving the car. Driving. But you know what? Sometimes what I've learned in my personal experience about driving the car or driving the bus um, it was a point in my life for about 10 years I had to let somebody else drive the bus because I, I crashed. You know, I was but that's all okay, over. isn't it? I was, but isn't that I, okay? It, you know what? It was the best thing for me because I understood, you know, my, you know, my driving skills wasn't, wasn't up to par because my thinking, I had to work on my thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I had yeah. to become okay with the change that was coming along with me with the work that I was putting in. But life still was going on. Yeah. Life don't stop. No. <laughs> I might I'm gonna hit a pothole today, I'm gonna run into a wall tomorrow. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. gonna yeah. say something that I might not agree with. Yeah. But who am yeah. I to determine? what's right or wrong based on what you believe. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. once Well, again, you know, we have this expectation that it's expect- supposed to go a certain way. It's supposed to go a certain way, and when it doesn't, then the, the way it does go seems like foreign and out of place, when in fact it was some kind of expectation or belief that it should go a certain way. I mean, there isn't a lot of support in the larger world, the mainstream media even like i mean i hate to bring that up but you know what you're talking about is something that there isn't a lot of you know widespread support for so people can keep stumbling around thinking it should be a certain way when they never really even get to the place of looking at what is where they're at what's going on inside of them in that moment and what could change and be different it's it's not there isn't a lot of support for for reflective life you know um and and there isn't a lot of witnessing in the messages that come to us without our even trying to you know be exposed to them they're slapping us in the face everywhere we go and there's there's still a lot of um well, what is called toxic positivity. That's a new okay. term I've heard. And um, to me, it's look at what is first. Look at what's there. Try to understand your relationship to that. What's your relationship to that belief or that thought or that idea or that action that you feel compelled to do? What's your relationship to it? How did it get born You know, inside of you? What does it really mean? And if you're if you're on the edge and you're bracing yourself, you're not going to be able to sit and write like you're encouraging people to do, which exactly. is the most amazing practice you could ever want to have because you're spending time with yourself and you're you're navigating your own infrastructure by writing because you're going to find out things you didn't even know about yourself. And you're also going to discover that maybe there's more possibility than you thought you had in doing that because I think there's it's medicine to just see just 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 observe your relationship to your ideas or what might come through you that you didn't even know was there I mean it is like it is such medicine to do that to have that practice 
I was compelled to have it as, you know, I was compelled because the verbal channel was easy for me and I grew up in the art. So right. I, you know, I just did it. Nobody told me to do it and I right. never really took a class on how to do it. But I've noticed that when, oh my God, the things that those boys wrote in that detention facility where I had them writing, the things that they wrote, oh my gosh, I mean, unbe- unbelievable stuff that was coming out. Um, it's just, it's like, it's, a, it's, it's really um, so great that you do that. You know, I met some great people in many of those facilities um, based on the fact that, you know, they just made a bad decision at the right time. <laughs> That's what I tell yeah. you. You made a bad decision at the right time. Yeah. Because yeah, sometimes, yeah. you know, through everything and through nothing, sometimes we really need to be saved. And when you talk about that expectations, right, you know, people have expectations of services and they have expectations of authority, right? Oh, yes. So oh, yes. which side of the table, you know, you have to figure out which side of the table that you really need to be on. You know what I'm saying? And when, when you you say positive toxicity, right? I like toxic that. Positivity. To- toxic toxic positivity. positivity. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. and when when I think about that, right? The first thing that came to mind for me is a workaholic. Mm. An individual that pours everything into the one thing that they love and neglect the one or two things that they really need to be working on. Unfortunately, they love this one thing for so long, and when they conquer it, right, there's nothing else because the things that they need to work on outside of that, they don't know how. They don't know how. And I'm talking about personal experience because I, I became, you know, I became a workaholic and I felt like, you know, I need to work. I need to, you know, I need to provide. I need to do this and I need to do that. And the one thing I lacked in that process, and we've been talking about it the whole show, communication. Then one day it hit me in the face. I'll be like, man, look, I, I got to do something different. Because every communicate every every level of communication outside of my employment was unhealthy. In what way? It's just I just didn't know how to communicate. If you said something to me based on what I believe or what I thought you shouldn't be saying, or instead of me sitting up there and absorbing what you're saying and looking at it as something that can be healthy for mm. me. You know, people see us better than we see ourselves. So if you're telling me something that you see about me mm. that's, that can benefit me, and if I don't agree about what you're saying, because I always, I already have this preconceived notion about who the hell yeah. I am yeah. and what I'm about, uh-huh. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm heaven over hell. So who are you to tell me about? What you think about me? So when you do that, I create an unhealthy environment. Mm, interesting. And I create unhealthy conversations that I can navigate mm. through to benefit what I feel and what I believe. 
And I had to learn how to communicate without having a negative emotional attachment to the communication. So if you're telling me something, I had to learn how to open my ears and shut my goddamn mouth. Well, it would be important for you to see why you would have that reaction, why you weren't open to input. It's tricky for somebody to tell you, you know, about yourself. It's very, very tricky, and they have to have a certain uh, uh, knowledge about you. But, you know, it's like the relationship with yourself and the relationship with somebody else It'd be important, I would think, for that person to tell you what their context is for why they're giving you this well, feedback. Well, well, how about this? How about I, what was what was the relationship with me? What was that like? I didn't even know what that was like mm. because I didn't I didn't know how to sit still and have a relationship with myself. Mm. I I didn't know what that was about. I didn't know what that entailed. I had to learn that. Yeah. By giving myself an opportunity to be taught by people that saw me differently than I saw myself. Yeah. And that would, I would say that it'd be easier to receive that if they loved you. Yes. And they also qualified it so that they understood that they were really tapping in and giving you feedback that would be essential for you rather than projecting something onto you. But the with the one thing I've learned, Did you trust it. Did you trust I, the feedback? In the beginning, I didn't trust it because my belief system always guided me to believe that I knew what was best for me. You didn't know what was best for me. You didn't know what you was talking about when it came to me. So you know what? Whatever you say to me, right, wrong, or indifferent, I'm I'm going to have some some feedback towards that. Mm-hmm. And and the thing, you know, going back to people see you better than you see yourself is what I learned and working in you know in the environment that I work in, right. Inmates have all day to watch you. Uh-huh. They have nothing else to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, so yeah. they watch you so much and they see your mannerisms and they see how you act, mm-hmm. they see how you communicate, they see how you move. Mm-hmm. And over a period of time, if you're around in them individuals long enough, they begin to tell you some things about you that sometimes you know they're right because and this the, is where the feedback was coming from from these people some, sometimes sometimes uh-huh. even family members see because you know I have I have a stubborn I, I had a I had a stubborn way about me <laughs> so you know I lived in a world where nobody could tell me anything I knew everything so when you know everything and nobody can tell you anything then you can't learn nothing well, yeah. I mean, it's like that piece I just read. That was where is the, your relationship to your vulnerability? Exactly. So when you read it, I, you know, my if you notice, I, I was just processing the information because guess what? That was me at one time in my life. So today, I can be vulnerable and comfortable in that vulnerability, and I trust it. And it and and to be honest with you. It don't matter where it's coming from. 
because you can tell me something about me. You we just met, and you can you can read me and say Isaac A B C D E and F G. <laughs> I'm going to absorb it. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. take that. I'm going to say thank sure. you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to take it, and I'm going to go sit by myself, and I'm going to absorb it. Because really, at the end of the day, it's just about it's about us being the best version of ourselves at different times of the day. So if I can be the best version of myself and still be vulnerable and teachable, why not give myself that opportunity to do that? Sure. Is the best version the whole version? It's the whole version. It has to be. The whole it, ha- it has to be. It, you, you can't cut it in half. Because best, you know, conjures an association that could link to <laughs> a certain kind of behavior that's more acceptable. <laughs> the behavior that's acceptable. That's my best behavior. I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm a little, you know, I'm pretty picky with the word. Look. It has an and association. That, and, that's, and you know what? And, and that's why we can have these conversations and laugh and smile because we both can relate. I knew exa- when you started on I just started laughing because I was like, she got me. <laughs> <laughs> and I lo- make sure it's the whole thing. Look, the whole and, I, and I love it because you know what? That's a great point. Even in negative behavior, many individuals want to believe that that's their best behavior. Well, and negative, again, this is the vocabulary of a polarized way of thinking. Yes. So I know that it's, it's, it's a really, it makes sense in certain contexts, but in another context, it really does uh, cover up or create a barrier for understanding because the minute you say negative nobody wants anything to be negative the minute you say that then i don't think you're going to be that open to an exploration because you've already named it decided what it is and you you've moved on to something else but i want when when you look at when you when you have that kind of terminology and i know i really really appreciate your letting me some of these words oh, apart. Most definitely. It's, it's, not everybody wants it's, me it's to the do work. that. They go, oh, yeah. you're criticizing me. or No, but this is this is an understandable term. Exactly. And in certain contexts, it's, it's, it, it, it works, it fits. And at the same time, if you want a deeper understanding, it's not going to be in, in an invitational term. It's not an invitational term. It doesn't invite exploration unless you say why are you so negative but still it's it's pejorative there is a pejorative tone even to positive because positive is like saying oh i'm glad you're so positive like the person might think oh i better hide anything else that's there that isn't that you know it's isn't really, that something it's, it is it's such a tricky insidious um uh challenge for us as physiological beings that are largely dictated by our brain parts. I mean, I don't think a lot of people really want to think about that. 
that our brain part, it's what goes in the brain, of course, too, what the vocabulary we have, the exposure to different influences that we have, the way we've been treated, whether we've been witnessed or not, whether we've ever learned to develop autonomy because what was true for us in the moment was reflected back and witnessed and supported. Exactly. And so, you know, it, it's 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 a it's a really challenging uh, request to uh, look at language more closely because it's a quick way to to capture something, you know, to identify something positive, negative, good, bad, right, wrong. Um, and, you know, there's so much more going on. There's so much more to the story that that terminology is not going to uh, 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 represent. It's just not going to represent mm. those. It's not. And to me, I want the whole story because whatever is true has to be, you know, I'll, I'll read this, this quote, a quick quote. This is all I'm taking this from this little book that I wrote about emotion literacy. Um, but there's a quote that, that I, I really love. Let me see if I could find it. Um, uh, Eugene Genlin. I don't know if, if you've ever heard of him here no, I'm it not is. familiar with him what is true is already so owning up to it doesn't make it worse not being open about it doesn't make it go away and because it is true it is what is there to be interacted with anything untrue isn't there to be lived people can stand what is true but they are already enduring it. Hmm. So it to me, I just want to know what's true. And if you're angry or you're hurt or you're confused or you need something or um, you did something, uh, there's shame there. There's, you know, there's so much stuff to, 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 uh, you know, reorganize yourself around and part of that or, or to organize yourself around just by being aware of it. And if we have a pejorative way of thinking about certain aspects of our life and our goings on, then how are we going to understand it? We're not going to be open and we're not going to be able to say, you know, this is some, there's something going on here. This is what's going on. And I don't really know what it means to me. I don't really know why I'm thinking this or believe this or, or did this thing. I don't really know. I don't know. And, and that is a very difficult thing for people to say even to themselves secretly. You know, I do not know. People don't even say it to themselves. Just being truthful and honest to yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yourself. And to face uncertainty because there's a certain amount, of, again, a certain amount of more pronounced vulnerability when you face that fact that, uncertainty is around every corner we just really don't know and when you have habitual behavior there is a comfort in that that's why it's comforting because i think the brain likes it the fight flight brain doesn't are unfamiliar there's an animus i think to these these brain parts but it just <laughs> doesn't like it and that's why people return to their abusers because it's familiar not because it's in their best interest but why do they do it because they're they're running for their life they're not in a place to reconsider they're not in the part of their brain that would enable them yeah, to reconsider. Yeah, it becomes. You know, it's like just look at what part of your brain you're inhabiting. That 
alone, if people could start just looking at that and the language that comes with it, the vocabulary that's reflective of that brain imperative, what is that brain designed to do? And all those things that that fight, fight brain is designed to do is what it's designed to do. I mean, you know, fast thinking, decisive, black, white, all that. But again, can you tell the difference between what's really happening or what you're projecting? If it's a projection, you could probably find a, a pathway to your other part of your brain to take a look at that and to write about it and to engage with it in a more reflective way and a more critical, creative thinking way. But you're not going to get that from the fight, flight brain. So you have to have enough courage to face uncertainty, to face the un unknown. You have to have enough I mean, it takes plain, just plain courage. It takes courage to do that because we have a part of our brain that steps in and eclipses everything else. I mean, look at society right now. Everybody's running scared. So many people are running scared. And this isn't new. This is not new. This has been going on for centuries because mm. of how people treat each other, yeah. because of how people perceive each other, because of how people cling to some kind of security based on some very incomplete information. I mean, I feel like right now this is a rant, but I, I'm so like I'm slapped in the face every day with the absence of this knowledge, you know, in the culture. I'm not seeing people with that awareness level, that meta level of looking at things and being slow with it and breathing, you know, and I'm, I'm just as guilty as everybody else, you know? <laughs> uh, yes. I totally am. I, I, I did a lot of work. I immersed myself in, when the pandemic hit, I immersed myself in creating these songbook movies and I worked with people all over the world. I sent you some of those. I hope you get a chance to look at those at some point. But I worked with people all over the globe because of a non-fiscal grant I was given, skills-based volunteer recruiting agency in New York, and opened the door to all these collaborations. And that's what I did. Instead of get up and walk around. So my yeah. walking, my mobility has been seriously compromised from sitting in, you know, you were describing that, you were saying it was describing you. It just totally described me. You could say I was a workaholic, but I had to do something that gave me more hope than I was getting from the culture at large. I wasn't getting any. And exactly. I felt like I could contribute something and work with even just the artists, even just affecting these visual artists with these songs that I had created. And the collaborations were so amazing and, you know, it's incredible diversity of people all over the world. I was I was glued to my chair and I didn't look at my somatic experience and how it was being affected by that. And now and you're like saying, well, you know, when I realized there's something I was neglecting. Oh, my God, I totally neglected my somatic experience. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm I'm not able to do the work. I have to really wind down a lot i was juggling 12 volunteers i was volunteering too and eight or nine projects at once um and i produced a massive amount of content and i don't regret it and at the same time i'm really happy to pay for it now with my body you know yeah uh, and getting back on track with 
Uh, well, I think too, I was storing a lot of anxieties. That's how I was processing the anxiety of the pandemic. I was just funneling my focus into this work and these amazing collaborations, but it required sitting in a chair endlessly. I mean, endlessly. It was a massive amount of work. I've never done that much work, that much content generation and production work. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of it, but at the same time, you know, Wow, I paid a massive price for it. Yes. Look, there's nothing wrong with, you know, working for your dream and and, and being a workaholic, but life has a balance. <laughs> yeah, a balance. And I want to be clear on that yeah, because I've had true. those periods where I was a workaholic. But for me, but I didn't... You were doing meaningful work. Yeah. You were doing work where you were contributing something, right? Exactly. And I, and I didn't right. have that balance. And I had to say, hold up. Yeah. Let me... Let me take a breath. Let me... Let me refocus. And um, it was something that I just knew I had to do. Pamela, this has been a great conversation, man. Ladies and gentlemen, communication. Best thing that ever happened to you. When you learn when you learn how. It takes it's so many facets to communication. We just have to give ourselves an opportunity to get to that place Pamela tell our guests how they can get in contact with you oh. well you can just, uh, <laughs> you know I don't know <laughs> come on over call me up um, if you want to if people want to learn about my work or contact me they can do that through emolit.org emo okay. for emotion lit for literacy.org emolit org, which is Emotion Literacy Advocates. There's a lot of content on there. I, I am, I am compelled to witness. You know, a lot of my work is a, a form of witnessing, and witnessing the infrastructure. So that's a lot of the the content that I have on there. I have free downloads and all kinds of things. And um, we have a, also snippets of samples of ways of thinking that are more open-hearted, more feeling inquisitive that are on the Instagram and YouTube pages at Emotional Literacy Advocates, all one word. And otherwise, I have these songbooks that I would love to screen for groups and have a, a process with it because we have study guides okay. that, invite, that invite self-reflection and writing and discussion. So you have your own pr private process with it, self-reflective writing process, private process, and then a so more social process following up with that in a group setting. And um, so, yeah, I can be contacted easily through, there's a, there's a little form you could fill out, or you can write me at Pamela at emolit.org is my email. Beautiful, beautiful. Pamela, thank you. You could have been doing anything else in the world today, but you decided to come and hang out with me. At the den, I most definitely, definitely appreciate it. Man, this has been a boom. This has been this has been something special. I most definitely appreciate it. 
And for well, you- I was excited to talk to you. I, I had an <laughs> intuition about it. I mean, I heard some of your podcasts, of course, and we had a little correspondence, but it was just, I was just so excited. And Thank um, you. I'm glad we were able to connect when, the way we did. More. I'm really so glad. Thank you. I, I, I was so excited to meet with you today. I, I was just like, you know, everybody I meet with, I'm excited, man, because it gives me an opportunity to grow, you know, for me. And you give me an opportunity to, to enter your world, you know, like no other. And um, humbly, it's appreciated. I most definitely appreciate it. It's mutual. I'm really glad to know more about you, too, because I was very curious. Yes, yes. We had a great conversation before the podcast. It, that was yeah. that was a, that was a podcast before the podcast. That was a great conversation. <laughs> yeah. We had a great time. A great conversation. But that's another episode of The Den. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, like I like to end my podcast, if nobody told you that they love you today, I love you. Peace.